Good morning, church. Good morning, indeed. Um, it is so good to gather with God's people to worship our God and King, both in song and in word. And speaking of the word, we're gonna we're gonna skip our values. We're gonna go right into the word. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew 18, the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Starting at verse 21. And if you are able, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 18. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, this is your word. This is your holy word. And God, I believe that this is the word you have for your people today. This is the message you have given me to declare. And God, I recognize that this is a message that the enemy does not want declared. And so God, God, we just come against the evil one and the spiritual forces of darkness that are at play right now. The enemy does not want to let go. And he will do everything he can in his power 
to keep this word from taking root in our hearts and minds. God, he's just waiting to snatch it. So, Father, we come and we ask, God, that you would be strong on our behalf. And we command you, every spirit of darkness that is arrayed against us right now, we command you in the name and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, leave. Leave. You have no place here. You are defeated foe. And you must obey. Father, pour out your spirit. Send your angels right now to encamp around us. And I pray, God, that you would arrest every heart and mind. And that you would speak into our hearts, God, the things that you would have us see. God, show us the things you would have us see in our own hearts. So that we might be free. And so that Christ would reign fully. So God, we commit this time into your hands. I commit every heart in this place into your hands. Come, Jesus. Reign. In your name we pray. Amen. There once was a time in our nation's history when forgiveness, the idea of releasing someone of a debt owed to us, was seen as a virtue, something to pursue, a moral standard that we strive to attain. That sentiment is captured in Alexander Pope's famous line, to err is human, to forgive is divine. That is, we as human beings are prone to sin. We sin against each other. We, we hurt each other. We all do. But we should all aspire to do as God does and show mercy and grace to those who have hurt us. Truth is, we are never more like God than when we forgive. There was once a time in our society when that was extolled as a virtue. But those days seem to be over. That appears to have been a value of a virtue of a bygone era. I say that because you and I now live in a society where many are finding the concept of forgiveness increasingly problematic. The very thought of forgiving those who have offended us is offensive to many. And that's because people today are encouraged to respond with outrage to even the slightest offense. Hence, cancel culture. What's cancel culture? It's the belief that you are no better than your worst moment. You are no better than your worst moment. That's what defines you. That's who you are. And it is by nature punitive and unforgiving. When someone errs in a way that really offends you, he or she must be done away with. With no hope of forgiveness, no hope of redemption, no opportunity for atonement. And we see this everywhere in our society, from the slightest to the greatest.
When relatives of nine African-Americans killed in Charleston, South Carolina, publicly said to the shooter, Dylan Roof, I forgive you. Stacey Patton responded in an opinion piece in the Washington Post that black America should stop forgiving white racists. The expectation and admiration for black people's forgiveness, she wrote, is about protecting whiteness. It enables white denial about the harms that racist violence creates. Our constant forgiveness only perpetuates the cycle of attack and abuse. A professor of psychology was enlisted to train another university's counseling professionals so that they can provide forgiveness therapy to students. But when a higher-up at that university heard about the plan, the professor was called in and denied permission to do what he had been hired to do. Forgiveness, it victimizes, the professor was told. Then came the explanation. When people are treated cruelly by others and you come along and tell them they must forgive, you're introducing a new hurt to an already hurting heart. And might not an effort to forgive someone go along with that person's attempt to control you. In your process of forgiveness, you may say, well, he, he's not such a bad person. Maybe he, what he did wasn't so bad after all. And so forgiveness becomes a way that people with abusive power maintain their power. Author Sabine Birdsong says there's a culprit for this problem of forgiveness in our culture. In a blog post entitled, To Hell with Forgiveness Culture, she argues we continue to believe forgiveness makes a person superior and that if they can't manage something so simple, the fault lies with them. She goes on to say there's a, it's clear where all this toxicity comes from. This is the result of, quote, a deeply ingrained religious hangover from Christianity. End quote. It's those Christians it's those Jesus freaks who are to blame for all this forgiveness talk that hurts people, that messes people up. But our problem with forgiveness is not just confined to the world, to people out there. I wish that were the case, but it's not. It's here too. It is very much within the four walls of the church where people who profess Christ struggle with the thought of forgiving those who have wronged them. And guys, in all my years of being a pastor, I've known so many believers, so many who have harbored bitterness and resentment, unforgiveness toward those who have sinned against them. And I'm guessing there are people in this room right now who are in that place. You've given your life to Christ and you seek to follow him. And yet you struggle to forgive those who have hurt you. I'm talking about the parent who neglected you. The mom, the dad who wasn't there. When you as a child needed the love and guidance, the, the protection, the presence of a parent... They were more concerned about your family's finances and reputation. I'm talking about the friend who stabbed you. 
the romantic partner who betrayed you, that business partner who cheated you, a spouse who broke their vow, a family member who broke your trust and took your innocence when they did things to you that no grown-up should ever do to a child. There is not a person in this room who has not been deeply hurt or sinned against by someone they trusted, by someone they loved. And some of us right now are harboring bitterness and resentment, unforgiveness towards such people in our lives. And some of us have been in that place for years. Guys, that's why passages like this are so important because it calls us to confront those parts of our lives we would rather ignore or avoid. Those parts of our hearts that God wants to shine his light on bring, and bring healing and wholeness to. And let me just say that the Bible is more than realistic about the difficulty of forgiveness. It never says what it's accused of saying. It never says forgiveness is simple and easy. It never says that. But it does say that while forgiveness is difficult, it is necessary. Oh, it's necessary, especially for those who belong to God's kingdom. Our story takes place just before Jesus enters Jerusalem for the very last time. The cross is not far off. And here in chapter 18, we see him giving some important instructions on what we are to do when we are sinned against what we have come to call church discipline. And that's when Peter, good old Peter, speaks up. I love Peter. I, love, I know he gets a lot of flack, but Peter is a guy who always, who says what everyone is thinking but doesn't say. You know what I'm talking about? You know people like that? That's Peter. But he goes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What's he wanting to know here? He wants to know the limits to forgiveness, right? Jesus, what's the cap? What's the ceiling? And, and when do I know that I've hit it? And before Jesus even has a chance to respond, he answers his own question as many as seven times. Now, you got to understand that in Peter's day, the rabbis taught that a faithful Jew was obligated to forgive up to three times. That's it. That's the ceiling. That's the cap. That's the magic number. Three times. That's it. But Peter here is wanting to impress Jesus with his graciousness. So, so he doubles that limit and adds a cherry on top for good measure. Up to seven times, Lord. Now you can imagine the surprise when instead of commending him, Jesus tells Peter, you're, you're off by a mile. No, Peter, not seven times, 77 times. Now, Jesus here is not saying that on the 78th time, you can let him have it, right? That misses the point entirely. What he's saying is that there is no limit. There's no place for keeping a tally of how many times a person is forgiven. In other words, if you're counting Peter, if you're counting the score, if you're keeping score, then you're not really forgiven. Jesus then makes a case or makes his case by telling a story. And the story is about a king who had a servant who owed him a lot of money. That's a massive understatement, isn't it? 
Now, an ordinary working man in that day earned a talent a year, one talent per year. This guy owed 10,000 talents. Translated into today's terms, where the average working class job earns 40,000 a year, this guy owed a debt of $400 billion. B, $400 billion. More than the gross national product of 80% of the countries in the world today. This guy had a debt of $400 billion, which is an astronomical sum of money. And what Jesus is doing here is giving us a picture of an unpayable debt, right? There's no way this guy's going to be able to pay that money back. And so the king demands that he make good on the debt. And the way they did that, the customary way they did that in the ancient cultures was to become a slave. And that's what the king calls for. He calls for the sale of the man along with his family and all that he owned. And that's when the servant drops to his knees. He falls to his knees and begs for mercy. What does he have to lose? He falls to his knees and pleads, have mercy on me. Be patient with me, king. And I will pay you back all that I owe. Now everyone listening to that story knows there's no way he's going to be able to pay that back. $400 billion, are you kidding me? That is an impossible debt to pay. But that is when the most amazing thing takes place. The king, we are told, has pity on the servant. In a show of unfathomable compassion, he rescinds a sentence. The man and his family will not become slaves, and he gets to keep all that he owns, but that's not all. The wait, there's more. And this is the craziest part. The king releases the man from his debt. He forgives him his $400 billion debt. He no longer has to pay it back. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that moment must have been like for this man to be shown that kind of grace, that kind of mercy? Anybody here ever experienced anything like that? Now, of course, none of us have a $400 billion debt. I hope you don't. But you ever been released of a debt you owed? I have. And it took place when I was in college. I was driving down the 605 on my way to school when I got pulled over. Now, the speed limit at that point in time was 55. It's 65 now, but it was 55 then. But I got clocked, I had mode. But I got clocked going 98. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. I, got, I was speeding because I was late for my finals, which did not matter to the police officer. <laughs> but I got caught going 43 miles above the speed limit. And at that point in time, the penalty was $9 for every mile you went over the speed limit. So 43 times 9 is $387, which for me as a starving college student was a crazy number. I didn't have 387 bucks. There's no way I was going to be able to pay that fine. So you know what I did? I fought it. I had no case, but, but paying for it was not an option. So I fought it. So when my court day came, I showed up. I showed up to court and I took my seat. And that's when I see police officer after highway patrol officer. All of them starts coming in and I'm sitting there and going, oh man, I'm dead. And I'm trying to remember which, 
what my police officer looked like. A few cases go before me, and then comes my turn. I get called to face the judge, and I'm standing there, and just when I'm expecting him to tell me to pay the fine, I see him utter these words. Mr. Yim, it's your lucky day. Your officer who cited you is not in court. You are released of your bond. You are free to go. <laughs> My jaw hit the floor. I could not believe. Are you kidding me right now? It sounded like he said I just won the lottery. I could not believe the good fortune that had befallen me. And I booked it. The moment it registered what the judge had said, I literally ran out of that room in case my cops showed up late. But I hightailed it out of there, and I remember that moment so distinctly. It felt, it felt like I was running on air. It felt so euphoric, knowing that I had been released of a $387 debt. This guy was released of a $400 billion debt. I got off of a technicality. My cop didn't show. This guy got off by virtue of grace. He was forgiven that debt. And this is mind-blowing grace. This is more grace than he has ever imagined asking for. This is more grace than anyone imagined existed. Now the meaning here is not hard to discern, is it? The king in the story is who? It's God. The servant with the crazy debt? That's you and me. And the 10,000 talents is the infinite debt we owe God. The mountain, the, the Mount Everest of moral debt that we have incurred for sinning against the holy God. The mind-numbing debt that we have been forgiven of, that we have been released from when we repented of our sins and placed our trust in Christ as Lord, Savior, and treasure. That much is clear in the story. But what's not as clear and what we absolutely have to get is this, the costliness of forgiveness. The costliness of forgiveness. This was not just some casual lack, all right, you're forgiven. No, it came at a massive cost. In other words, when the king forgave the dead, it didn't simply disappear, right? Poof, it just vanishes into thin air. That's not how it works. No, there's still a, the loss of a vast fortune that needs to be accounted for, and who takes the hit? The king, of course. The moment he forgave that debt, it destabilized his kingdom. The moment he forgave that debt, his net worth was reduced in ways we can't even begin to fathom. And it's critical that we understand this. That forgiveness comes with a price tag that none of us can fully understand. And this is where we have to dive deeper into God's forgiveness of us. Specifically, what is it that enables God to forgive us so radically, even though he is holy and just? Knowing what we know about his holiness and justice, how is forgiveness even possible? Now, for most people today, there's nothing complicated about this at all. He just forgives. 
And this is captured in what German poet Heinrich Heine said as he laid on his deathbed. God will forgive me. That's his job. That's how most people think about forgiveness. Of course he's going to, what could be more obvious? I sin, he forgives. But the Bible tells us that God's forgiveness cannot be taken for granted. If this book tells us anything, it tells us that God in his holiness cannot shrug, wink at, or ignore sin. And he in his justice will punish evil. And yet the same Bible tells us over and over and over again that God is a forgiving God. And you see this paradox of what God said to Moses as he passed by him on Mount Sinai. He says in Exodus 45, 34 verses 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It's even more emphatic in the Hebrew. It literally says, In no way will he treat the guilty as if they were innocent. Which is it? Is he full of compassion and grace, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Or will he in no way leave the guilty unpunished? The answer is yes. It's both. He is both a God of love and a God of wrath. And we see this all throughout this book. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that he is both a God of love and a God of wrath, including the most famous verse in the entire book, which is what? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Almost everybody knows that verse. But almost nobody knows the context of that verse. They have no idea that the very next verse talks about condemnation. With verse 18 saying, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And John 3.36 is even more stark. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is repugnant to many today. The modern person cannot fathom how God can pour out wrath. Why? Because he's a God of love. And those two things cancel each other out. Love drives out wrath. The wrath drives out love. But that is not how it is with God. God's wrath is not what you and I think of when we think about wrath. It's not blind rage. No, it is his willed response to the evil that assaults what he loves. That's the wrath of God. It is his willed response to the evil that assaults what he loves. I mean, think about the people you love. If your parents, your siblings, your your spouse, your kids, your friends, if they were assaulted, it would be only right for you to be angry, right? You threaten my wife, you harm my children, I promise you, you will see my wrath. How much more God? 
How much more him who is infinitely loving, infinitely righteous, infinitely holy. You see, God, by the very perfection of his being, cannot but be angry at sin. And in his justice, cannot leave evil unpunished. Now, the reality of God's love and wrath is seen, revealed supremely where? On the cross. The cross of Christ. It's there on the cross that we see the two converge. The love of God is seen in Jesus dying a voluntary death in our place. He died the death we should have died. And the wrath of God is seen in Jesus being punished in our place. The wrath of God for sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. Jesus took it all. He took it all. He drank the full cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop. And this is why, listen, this is why when we as Christians sin, Jesus is not asking the Father for mercy. Did you know that? 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus, John says, is our advocate before the Father. You know what that means? That means he's our defense attorney. He's our legal representative before the Father. Now, unlike what most people think, he doesn't ask for mercy when you sin. Father, I know he blew it, but please have mercy. That is not what he's doing. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Father, you're a just God. And the wages of sin is death, and you demand a payment. Here it is. Here am I. I paid for it. I paid that debt. I paid it, and you cannot exact two payments for the same debt. Therefore, I do not ask for mercy. I ask for justice. And justice demands the acquittal of those who are called by my name. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins. Notice John doesn't say God's mercy is what forgives us, although that is true. Oh, no, John says God's forgiveness of us now is a matter of justice. He has already received full payment for my debt, and it would be unjust to demand a second payment. Oh, Christian, this is, this is the depth, this is the width, this is the scope of God's forgiveness of you. The infinite debt you incur, the unpayable debt you owe God, has been paid in full by Christ. Praise be to God. He paid it all. He paid it all. He paid it all with his precious blood. That's what it cost God. That's the price he paid to forgive you of your sins. It costs us nothing to receive it. It costs them everything to grant it. And that brings us to the heart, the very heart of forgiveness. To forgive is to absorb the debt yourself. Don't miss this. To forgive is to absorb the debt 
yourself. All sin incurs a debt. And that debt never, it never vanishes. It, just, it doesn't just disappear into thin air. It's paid for one way or another. Someone always pays. And to forgive is to pay the debt of the wrongdoer yourself instead of making them pay for it. This is the heart of Christian forgiveness. Now the world, the world operates on one principle. You owe, you pay. But in God's kingdom, the operating principle is this. You owe, I'll pay. I'll take the hit. I'll absorb the cost instead of making you pay. Tim Keller puts it this way. To forgive us, to deny oneself revenge. To absorb the cost. To not exact payment by inflicting on them the things they did to you in order to even the score. Forgiveness is inwardly giving up the desire to get even. To forgive is to give the perpetrator a gift they do not in any way deserve. In love, you are absorbing the debt they owe you. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about the greater good. Oh, that's good. It's a form of voluntary suffering whereby I relinquish the right to get even. I give up the right to hurt you back, to get back at you. Why? All for the sake of the greater good. Each week, Kevin Tonell is required to mail a dollar to a family he would rather forget. They sued him for $1.5 million, but settled for $936 to be paid a dollar at a time. The family expects a payment every Friday so that he will not forget what happened on the first Friday of 1982. That's the day their daughter was killed. Danette was convicted of man manslaughter and drunken driving. He was 17, she was 18. Tanel served his sentence and spent seven years campaigning against drunk driving, six more than the sentence required. But he keeps forgetting to send a dollar. The weekly restitution is to last until the year 2000, a total of 18 years. The family has taken him to court four times for failure to comply. And after his most recent appearance, he spent 30 days in jail. He insists that he's not trying to defy the order, but rather is haunted by the girl's death and tormented by the weekly reminders. He offered a family two boxes of checks covering the payments until the year 2001, one more than required. They refused. It's not the money they seek, but penance. Quoting the mother, we want to receive the check every week on time. He must understand that we are going to pursue this until August of 2000. We will go back to court every month if we have to. What a tragic story. Now, the loss of a daughter is the greatest tragedy, no doubt about it. That is an unimaginable loss. But how much is enough? 
how many payments must this man make before they're at peace? Do you think this family found peace when August 2000 rolled around? I seriously doubt it. Because you see, the payment system doesn't work. It doesn't. Evening the score never evens the score, no matter how badly we want it to. To forgive is to give up the right to get even. It's to deny oneself revenge. Now, having said that, let me say this. Letting go of vengeance doesn't mean letting go of justice. This is one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about forgiveness. That when you forgive, you don't seek justice. No, this may matter. Kevin Tunnell may be forgiven by the family, but he still has to pay his debt to society. Justice is a pursuit of fairness, rightness, but vengeance is a desire for retribution, and that's what we have to lay aside. We as Christians should seek justice. Why? Because injustice grieves the heart of our God, and it mars the creation that he loves. So when someone commits a crime, when someone breaks the law, we can forgive that person in our hearts and still insist that they deal with the consequences of their actions. So forgiveness in no way hinders the pursuit of justice. It actually promotes it. Why? Because it changes the attitude of our hearts from wanting the person's harm to now wanting his or her good. While we're on the subject, let me mention a few more common misunderstandings of forgiveness. Okay, what forgiveness is not, starting with this, forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is not excusing Forgiveness does not mean we excuse bad behavior or try to explain away sinful actions. Oh, that's just how she is. She just has a short fuse. You know how he gets when he has a little too much to drink. An excuse eliminates the need for forgiveness because it's saying that there was no real debt to begin with. Forgiveness is not excusing. Second, forgiveness is not whitewashing. In other words, it doesn't turn a blind eye to wrongdoing. It doesn't pretend that sin is not a sin. It doesn't deny that something bad happened. No, forgiveness starts by acknowledging the offense and the debt that was incurred. Because you can't pay a debt you don't even acknowledge. Third, forgiveness is not only refraining from revenge. It's not only refraining from revenge, and here's what I mean by that. A lot of people say, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Meaning, I may not look to actively harm you, but I'm going to treat you with coldness. And I'm going to hope for your demise because you still owe me. So rather than releasing them of their debt, they hold on. They hold on. You hold a grudge and you hold a grudge and you root for them to fail until you feel they've paid off what they owe. Lastly, forgiveness is not immediate trust. Forgiveness is not immediate trust. People sometimes think that forgiveness means that we have to immediately resume. A relationship with the offender at the level it was before. But that is not forgiveness. Listen, until a person shows signs, evidence of true change, true repentance, real transformation, you should not trust that person. 
And churches have been notorious in this area. We have put molesters in places of authority and trust. We have told wives to go back to their abusive husbands all in the name of forgiveness because that's what forgiveness entails, they say. That is not forgiveness. Trust must be restored. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is paying the debt of the wrongdoer yourself rather than making them pay for it. It means when you want to make them suffer, when you want to hurt them back in the way they hurt you, you refuse to do it. It means you give your perpetrator a gift they in no way deserve. That's forgiveness. Now why? Why in the world would I do that? Why in the world would I do such a thing? Here's why. Because that's exactly what God in Christ has done with you. That's exactly what the God of heaven has done for a sinner like you. And that's what we would have expected of the forgiven servant. After he is released of an unpayable debt, after being shown such unfathomable grace, you would have expected him to go out and be the same or do likewise to the people in his life, but that is not what we see. In the next scene, we see him meeting another servant, and the second man owes the forgiven servant the modern equivalent of a few bucks. That's it. A few measly dollars, but he grabs him and he starts choking him, demanding that it pay him. And the second man says the same thing that he said to the king, have patience with me, be, be merciful, and I will pay you back all that I owe. But the forgiven servant refuses and has him thrown in prison. And when the news reaches all the way up to the king, when the king hears of what had happened, he summons a servant, he calls him to himself, and he says, and he says, you you wicked man. You wicked servant. How can someone who experienced such grace, such mercy, be so cruel and petty toward others? And he has the jailers throw him in prison. And Jesus ends the story with this chilling statement. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's not hard to see the irony, the, the hypocrisy of the situation, right? This is the part, part of the story that's meant to evoke anger and disbelief in us. Like, are you, are you kidding is he for real? How can he do that? How? How is that possible? After all that he has been given, all that he has been shown. And with that, Jesus drives the point home. You cannot receive mercy from God and then turn around and demand payment from others. You can't do that. You can't ask for and receive forgiveness from God and then seek retribution from the people that have 
hurt you. Jesus says that's wrong. That cannot be. That's incongruent. The most fundamental lesson of this parable is this. Human forgiveness is driven by divine forgiveness. Our forgiveness of others is based and motivated by God's forgiveness of us. It's the vertical that fuels the horizontal. That's what enables and empowers me to do what I cannot do on my own. I cannot forgive those who have hurt me in my own strength. I can't. I can't. I'm not that strong. I'm not that loving. I'm not that gracious. But when I ponder what God has done for me and his son, oh, when I think of the grace and the love that he has lavished on me in Jesus, when I think of all that I've been forgiven of, all my vileness, all my wickedness, all my rebellion, every sin, every sin nailed to the cross, removed from me as far as the east is from the west. When I think about that, all of a sudden I've got all that I need to forgive those who have sinned against me. And that's what was so incongruous about the first servant's attitude toward the second servant. You have a man who was a servant living only by the mercy of the king, acting as if he were king. And what Jesus is pointing out to us is that when we who live only by God's mercy sit in judgment of others and demand payment from them, we are servants who are acting like the king. But the thing that will get us off that throne, the one thing that will change our hearts, is when we come to know the amazing love of the king who became a servant. The judge of all the earth who was judged in our place and took the punishment we deserve. That's what changes the heart. And that's what enables us to forgive from the heart. And if you can't, if you don't, if you refuse. Knowing what you know, if you refuse to forgive your offender, then what does that say? What does that tell us? It tells us that we have not been transformed by the mercy of God. Hear this. When we live in unforgiveness, that is a telltale sign that we have not been changed by God's love and mercy. Keller says divine mercy should change our hearts so that we are able to forgive as God forgave us. If we will not offer forgiveness, it shows that we did not truly repent and receive God's. Most people who profess to have asked for God's forgiveness have not been transformed by it. And the place we see it is in our relationships. Jesus said that visible, unusual, evident love is the mark of his true disciples. 
if we have not, if we have truly grasped and received his salvation, it should change us. God's mercy must and will make us merciful. If it doesn't, then we never understood or accepted God's mercy and truth. Guys, we've got to seriously think about this. If you say you believe the gospel, that we are saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God, yet you hold on, you hold on to that grudge, you refuse to release that person, you release to, to forgive them of their debt against you, then perhaps you don't really believe what you claim to believe. truth is you may not know the gospel at all. Because see, according to this book, when you know grace, you show grace. When you know mercy, you give mercy. When you know love, you demonstrate love. And when you know the forgiveness of God, you extend that forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. C.S. Lewis summed it up this way. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is why unforgiveness, hear me. This is why the refusal to forgive is not ultimately a relational problem. It's a theological problem. It's a failure to grasp, to understand the infinite mercy and grace that I've been shown. A mountain of moral debt that I've been released from. Listen, listen. You will never be able to fully forgive others for their sins against you unless you first experience God's forgiveness of you for your sins against him. Our guilt must be dealt with. You've got to first deal with your guilt before God. Then and only then can you rightly deal with other people's guilt towards you. So let me ask you, do you know his forgiveness? Guys, everything rides on this. This is not just some talk. Everything rides on this. Do you know the forgiveness of God? Have you tasted his mercy? Have you tasted his grace? Do you know the love of God in Jesus? Do you know what it means? Do you know what it means for your guilt to be removed? Do you know what it means for your shame to be taken away? Because of the love of Jesus Christ, do you know it? Your eternal destiny hinges on it. Your eternal destiny, heaven or hell, hinges on how you answer that question. In closing, I want to give a couple of concluding remarks on forgiveness real quick. Two things that I believe are really important for us to know. The first is this. Forgiveness isn't just about you. Forgiveness is not just about you. Here's what I mean by that. There are people in our society that are real strong proponents of forgiveness. People like Oprah. They preach forgiveness all the time. The importance of forgiveness. But for them, forgiveness is mainly individualistic. Meaning they forgive out of self-interest. 
They're concerned only with the inner healing, the inner peace, the inner well-being that comes with forgiveness, which God intends for us. But there's little to no thought given to the perpetrator and their well-being. But in Christian forgiveness, we desire the good of the wrongdoer. We seek the welfare of the perpetrator. Why? Because we're a people of the cross. That's why. And the one who hung there for our sin, you know what he prayed? He prayed, Father, forgive them. God, have mercy on them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing right now. Jesus prayed for God's forgiveness, for his mercy, for the very people that were killing him. You see, Christian forgiveness is distinct from the world's forgiveness. And that we actually seek the good, the welfare of the wrongdoer. And, and we seek reconciliation whenever possible. This is big. Now, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. It's not. But when we truly forgive, when we truly forgive, we are truly open to reconciliation. To the restoration of that relationship whenever possible. But for that to happen, both sides need to come to the table, right? That's why I said whenever possible. It's not always possible. But if it is, if the person to whom you extend forgiveness is wanting to reconcile, wanting to be restored, by all means, Christians do so. Especially if they are within the household of the faith. Especially if they are a fellow brother or sister. So first, forgiveness is not just about you. Second, Forgiveness is willed before it's felt. Forgiveness, a lot of times, is granted before it's felt. Not the other way. Not felt and then granted. We see forgiveness as a feeling. It's, a, it's something I feel towards my perpetrator. And because it's a feeling, if I don't feel it, I can't give it. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not primarily an emotion. It's a promise we make despite what we feel. When you forgive somebody, you are not saying, all my anger towards you is gone. That's not what you're saying. When you forgive that person, you are not saying, all my hurt is gone. No, when you forgive someone, what you're saying is, I am now going to treat you the way God has treated me. That's my promise. And I will remember your sins no more. That doesn't mean that I can't actually recall it. Oh, I remember it. But I'm no longer going to act on the basis of them. That will no longer be the controlling reality in my life. You know what's going to be the controlling reality in my life? The grace and mercy of God for a sinner like me. That is a controlling reality in my life. Now here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of forgiveness. When you give it, the feelings come. The beauty of forgiveness is that feelings do come. What C.S. Lewis said about love also applies to forgiveness. He said, when you... When you act lovingly towards someone you don't have feelings of love for, when you're, when you're kind to them, when you assume the best and believe the best about them, you know what happens? 
Oh, you start feeling love towards them. It's the same with forgiveness. Oh, you may not feel a thing. But when you act in forgiveness, when you give it, when you grant it, the feelings follow. A beautiful example of this comes from the life of Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch Christian who, along with her sister Betsy, spent years at Ravensbrück, a concentration camp for helping Jews escape the Nazis. Betsy died in prison. But Corey survived. Many of the guards there were horrible to the women in the camp, as you can imagine. And there was one in particular that she described as being especially loathsome. Several years after the war, Corey was speaking at a church about forgiveness. When an old man approached her at the end of service, she immediately recognized him as that guard. He told her how he had become a Christian after the war, and he sought forgiveness for all the cruel things he had done. Then he extended his hand and asked, "Do you forgive me, Fräulein?" It was the first time she had met any of her former captors, and so the woman who had just given a fine speech about God's forgiveness kept her hand in her pocket. But she remembered what she knew about Christian forgiveness. She knew she had to do it, and so she prayed, "Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the rest." She writes, "As I reached out my hand, an incredible thing took place." The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, spraying into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother! I cried. I forgive you with all my heart. For a moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and his former prisoner. And she concludes, "I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment." Forgiveness is never easy. It's hard. It's incredibly hard, but it's right, and it's good, and it's necessary for those who have known and tasted the mercy and the grace of our God. I just want to invite us right now, just to go into a time of reflection. If I could just ask you to. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. Who comes to mind for you? Who 
who's on your mind right now. Is it your dad? Is it a former lover? Is it a friend? Is it a sibling? A coworker? Who are you harboring bitterness and resentment towards? God is calling you today to let go. To let go of that grudge. To let go of unforgiveness. God is calling you right now. To release that person of the debt they incurred against you. Christian, you gotta let go. And you can. You can. Not because you're strong. Not because you're so loving. But because you have the spirit of a living God inside of you. And he gives you the strength to do what you cannot do on your own. The spirit helps us in our weakness. And some of us in this room, some of you, you got a phone call to make after we're done. Some of you have a letter to write. Some of you have a meeting to set with your offender, with that person who has hurt you so bad. You need to step. You need to move. And God will give you all the grace and all the mercy, all that you need to do for them what he has done for you. Before we go into communion, I'm just going to encourage you to just take a moment just to go before God. Some of you, some of you, God is speaking to you right now. You know it. You've been stuck in that prison for, for, for years. He wants you to step out. Will you bring your heart? Will you bring your unforgiveness, your bitterness, your resentment, your anger, your hatred? Bring that before God right now. And my wife was telling me this morning, Pastor Ray was telling me this morning, guys, This is one of the ways in which the devil maintains a foothold in our lives. He maintains a foothold in our lives by refusal to forgive. When we hold on to our anger, our bitterness and resentment, the enemy, we open the door and we tell him, come in. And the way we shut that door is by absorbing the debt of your offender yourself. So in the grace that God gives, 
and the amazing grace that God has shown you, I encourage you, I implore you, let him go. Let her go. Let her go. Let him go. I know he hurt you. I know he did something really terrible. Let him go. Let him go. Show us your glory. God, show us the glory of your grace. The glory of your mercy that you lavished on us. God, cause us to ponder the payment of our Savior. price you paid. God, what it cost you to forgive us of our sins. God, I pray that you would cause that to be the focus of our hearts. That if there's anything we think about, if there's anything we dwell on, it is the grace and the mercy, the amazing love of God. Oh God, cause us, cause us to be there. And God, I pray that the knowledge of your love and your grace and your, your mercy, God, God, would you change our hearts? Transform it. God, so that we would see the offender with, with a new set of eyes. God, that we would be the type of people that actually seek their welfare, their good. that we would give to them what they do not deserve. Because you have given us what we do not deserve. And God, we don't deserve your son. We don't deserve the price he paid. But God, thank you for giving it to us. Thank you, God, for giving us Jesus. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you for the cross where we see your love and your wrath kiss. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that we are free. We are free. We are free. God, speak your freedom. Speak your freedom, God, over your people right now. God, speak your freedom. God, cause them to release. Cause them, God, to let go. God, speak your freedom. Your people. The 
be my know the freedom for which you died. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This is our time to remember the cross. Loving sacrifice of our Savior. We died the death we should have died. And was punished in our place. The gospel is summed up in one word. Substitution. Jesus in my place. He drank the cup of God's wrath in my place. He was punished in my place. And because he paid the debt that I owed God, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. And I stand holy and blameless before God. Not because of anything I've done, but all because of what God in Christ has done for me. And that's what this is. This isn't some religious ritual. This is an active remembrance of what God has done for a sinner like me. This is what this is. God, I remember. I receive the forgiveness. But it's also a charge in light of the forgiveness you have been shown. Now go give it out. Go extend it. The grace you have received from me, now go extend it. the people that have hurt you. But let that be what this moment is. Okay, and so we're going to form, we're going to ask you to form lines down the middle and go out to the, to the outside, okay? So when you're ready, please come forward. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, please hear me. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, if you do not know, if you're not sure if you know the forgiveness of God, I ask you not to come. Lest you call judgment upon yourself, So for your sake, if you are not sure that you belong to Christ, I ask that you refrain and that you simply observe. And let this be a time for you to be made right with God. But if you belong to Jesus, come on up and take the cup and take it back to your seat so we can partake together.